0: Good morning, church. It's great to be with you and to worship with you. I'm betting that many of you hardly know me, mostly because I'm pretty sure that I hardly know most of you. Which is understandable, since Karen and I are relative newcomers to Christ Church, moving back to our longtime home, In Los Alamos and showing up here about the time that Greg came to be our pastor in 2016 and then to make ourselves even more scarce uh, we were away for almost a year and a half uh, building a winter home in Arizona that's done thank the Lord the important thing to say this morning is that I'm a semi-retired pastor not on the staff here and not serving any other church. In other words, to quote the immortal words of Lieutenant Sam Weinberg in the movie A Few Good Men, I have no responsibilities here whatsoever. (laughs) Except of course to honor my Lord and his love for his people, this people too, by exercising some stewardship of his marvelous word to and for us all today, read so well for us. Of course, not bearing the pastoral burden for all of you, which Greg bears, uh, soon to have some help, thank the Lord, from from John, um, that takes the pressure off and leaves me pretty free this morning. Uh, Free enough, probably, if I had the guts to preach in this t-shirt. Can you see that? Pretty, pretty cool, huh? Pretty cool. Grandpa, the man, the myth, the legend. It's a gift from my, one of my daughters for Father's Day. She's the mother of two of my beautiful granddaughters. Now, the, the reason I wanted to uh, hold that up for you to see today is because it testifies to the mysterious power especially as you get to be my age, the power that the generations around us in our family lines wield in our sense of who we are. Not always, but often, and certainly so in my case, we're moved to some mixture of uh, awe and, and gratitude at the realization That we're part of this great chain of being. You don't think about it much when you're little, because only the generations before you, uh, before your own, lie in view. And when you become a parent, um, as as many of you are, you catch sight for the first time of a generation coming behind you, but you're typically so immersed in child-rearing, that you don't have time to ponder your new place in time. But when you become a grandparent, if you're anything like I was as a new grandpa, you're blown away by the force with which these little ones, um, two, two generations behind you now, two generations you can see, these little ones capture your heart and take you to this new place in time these ties that bind us together uh, across the generations progenitors to offspring um, are truly uh, mysterious and wonderful and they're so necessary too right or your part of the great chain is broken and your line comes to an end the pain of which Only those who wanted children and couldn't have them, or had them, and lost them, can truly fathom. I come from a long line of Greeks myself, alternating generations of Harry and George, Harry and George. Each son naming his son after his father. For three generations, Actually, our line hung on a single thread because my dad and I and my son, George, are all only sons. My, my son, the newest of the Georges, got tired, I guess, of living on the edge and has fathered two sons, at least. The oldest of them is the newest, newest Harry Cronus, let loose on the earth, God help us. And I love, I have to tell you that I, I love um, to take out from time to time and look at uh, this one three-generation and three four-generation pictures I have that help me locate myself in time, in time and remember who I am this, as this Harry Cronus. They remind me too of who I wish... I were more like my grandpa Harry and my dad, especially the greatest men I think I've ever known. I'm pretty sure that I'm the weakest link in the chain, actually, but maybe the best looking. (laughs) I'll bring those pics for you some Sunday if you bring yours. The point of all this is that we cannot begin to understand what Paul is up to in this great text at the, at the end of this opening segment of the letter to the Romans. And, and what he's up to, by the way, is nothing less than laying down as the foundation of the good news the radical truth about justification by faith. We, we cannot begin to understand Paul's argument where we take no account of the power of roots, of heritage, of lineage, to locate us in time and to tell us who we are. Alex Haley, whose book, Roots, captivated the nation back in the late 70s, didn't invent the significance of this generational linkage. He merely capitalized on it, and God knows we all needed him, a black American, to to do it and do it as grandly as he did for the sake of racial healing in our society. The chief lesson he taught us is that those whom we come to see, regardless of their skin color, as offspring and progenitors too, in a human lineage much like our own, those we cannot continue for long to treat as mere chattel. To get to the point with respect to our text, however, for no other people group has lineage meant as much as it has always meant and still means to God's people, the Jews, who, as Frederick Beekner famously described them, are, quote, just like every other people, only more so, unquote. Lineage is everything to Jews, always has been and certainly was for Jews in Paul's time, Paul included, as we know from Philippians 3. And and this wasn't just because as a tiny uh, ethnicity, often marginalized and even threatened with extinction, Jews were naturally going to prize and celebrate the ties that bound them together intimately as a people across their generations and through time. It was because though the odds were repeatedly stacked against their survival as a people, they kept beating those odds. Generation after generation, and it was impossible for them to read that history as anything but evidence that uh, that god is faithful to keep his promises and therefore is a fresh cause to praise him and we should keep this in mind whenever we labor through one of those long genealogies in the old testament you know the ones i'm talking about don't you the ones that have you stumbling through the pronunciation of all of those strange names and that includes by the way those two genealogies that trace the lineage of jesus which are if nothing else stark reminders of his jewishness and of the jewishness of the gospel itself at least in its origins in any event at the genealogical source of all that jewish pride and and religious pride too finally since good jews including those in paul's audience in the church in rome were certain that in their survival God was simply keeping his promise. At the source of that ethnic and religious lineage was none other than the one to whom the promise was originally given. You know who I'm talking about. When the universal scope with which the Bible's great story of God's love for the world shrinks down, necks and narrows down in Genesis 12 to his plan to raise up a people for himself through whom he would save and bless this fallen world. He calls a solitary human being to father this great host. The the husband of Sarah, whom we also know, of course, as Abraham. She doesn't usually get the billing. She deserves, does she? And you know how the story, some of which Paul brings to mind in our text, unfolds from there. Abraham and Sarah uh, have... This son, born incredibly, impossibly late in their lives, uh, Isaac. Isaac is the father of Jacob. Jacob is the father of these 12 who become the, the tribes of Israel, out of one of whose lines, Judah's, our Lord Jesus is born in what Paul elsewhere calls the fullness of time. But it all started with Abraham whom Jews were and still are naturally quick to celebrate and that is why if Paul's going to help believers in Rome who are of Jewish descent who may be inclined to think that they are already covenantally right with God simply by virtue of being lineal descendants of Abraham if he's going to help them uh, and not to mention all of us gentiles too those in rome and paul's day and those in santa fe in ours if he's going to help us all understand that it's only by a miracle of grace by the the gift that god gives us in christ through which god puts all us sinners right with himself including abraham's lineal descendants if he's going to help all of us understand this then Paul has to take the argument all the way back to the source, to the one to whom the great promise was originally given to Abraham, which is what he's doing here in chapter 4 of Romans, the last half of which we hear him declaring to us too today as God's word to us. And what a grand and glorious vision of this great watchword of the Reformation, justification by faith, emerges from his pen. Paul's argument here is, of course, a continuation of what he has been arguing all along in the first three chapters, and especially of his claim that Jews are no better off apart from what God has done in Christ, than all of the rest of us are. Correcting these false Jewish understandings about Abraham, lets Paul press this claim as sharply as possible. All of us have fallen short of God's glory and are as good as dead in our godlessness and sin, Jews included. Being a descendant of Abraham is no hedge, against the wrath of God on all that's unfit for intimate communion with him, which Paul says has now been revealed for the whole human race in the death of Jesus on on the cross. I told Greg a while back that Paul reminds me in Romans of that boy character in the movie The Sixth Sense. Everywhere he looks, he sees dead people. You and me included. And the only remedy for this is the one that God provides out of his sheer goodness and mercy in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now it helps to locate Paul's key words here. Righteousness, justification, faith. And his And the whole, actually, of his understanding of what God has done in Christ, it helps to locate them in the context from which they all come, covenant-making and covenant-keeping in the ancient world. The term righteousness, for example, describes the condition in which everything is right in a covenant relationship. It's what covenant partners should expect to have and enjoy from each other when Each of um, them is fulfilling uh, covenant obligations. And though each of us was made for this rightness in covenantal union with, with God, each of us has failed at it, fatally failed at it, to God's great sadness. But rather than see us lost from his fellowship forever, dead forever in our sinful worship of things and self, God acts in Christ to save us. He refuses to take this universal human no, uh, your no and my no, as an answer. He refuses to let our sin have the last deadly word for us. He has the last word instead. And so he comes all the way around to our side of the covenantal union in the person of Christ to take your place and mine to swallow our unrighteous living with his one righteous death and so to fulfill for each one of us who will yield his or her place to, to him. The covenant faithfulness we've been unable to manage and could never manage on our own. And that is how each of us is put in the right with God. The only way, in fact, that we're ever put right with him. The related covenantal term for this right-wising, this putting in the right, and it's a cognate in Greek for the word for righteousness, is the word justified. That's what God does when he covers all our covenantal disqualifications in Christ's righteousness and rejoins us to himself forever. And from that justification, that's the term for it, from that justification, a wonderful life, in God's grace, and, and the contours of that life are going to emerge in the next, sedge, next section, um, stay tuned, um, chapters 5 through 8. Uh, the, the contours of that just keep unfolding from glory to glory for each of us who believes in Jesus. Now, now, the amazing thing about Abraham, according to Paul, is that he was put right with God in the same way no righteous act no work on abraham's part says paul in the run-up to our verses induced god to count uh, abraham righteous and to enter into covenant with abraham and his offspring the sign and seal for which was and, and still is circumcision for every jewish male And a truly good Jew, Paul is suggesting, a truly good Jew should not imagine otherwise. No, it was simply because Abraham believed, believed God's covenant promise to make him the father of more offspring than there are stars in the heavens. It was simply because Abraham trusted, trusted God to be as good as his word that God reckoned Abraham righteous and fit for his company for, forever. This is that righteousness that comes from faith, about which Paul has spilled so much ink to proclaim. And the irony is that Abraham was its first practitioner, modeling how a faithful human covenant partner keeps faith with a God like ours. What an incredible picture of faith it is to this faith of Abraham, whose history with God Paul rehearses briefly, but so beautifully in our text. It reads like a dramatization of Hebrews 11.1, don't you think? If, quote, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, unquote, then that is what Abraham models. Listen to the litany of faith's descriptives in Paul's recitation. In hope, he believed against hope. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. No distrust made him waver. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why, you see, That is why Paul declares, quote, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The main point of Paul's argument, however, to which all all of this is leading, is that there is no other kind of faith. No other saving faith. No other faith that sets us right with God than, than the faith that Abraham demonstrated. He anticipated so well, in fact, the utter trust in and reliance upon his heavenly father, which Jesus manifested so completely and perfectly, that we can say, and I'm, I'm sure Jesus would be happy for us to say, that all faith in God, all belief in him is Abrahamic faith whether it's the faith of those Jews and Greeks in Rome to whom Paul wrote or your faith or my faith today, it will look inevitably like Abraham's faith. That's because it is always, faith is always, this trust in and reliance upon God for what is impossibly beyond our reach Whether that's having a son at an incredibly old age and with a long past fertile wife, in Abraham's case. Or having a lifetime's worth of sin forgiven and being put right with God, in my case. Calvin summarizes this well. Quote, all things around us are in Opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that He counts us just. We are covered with sins. Unquote. What is there to do in all these cases but trust God to do what we cannot and gladly to? Because he who brings into being the things that are not and who raises the dead loves it. He loves it when we lean on him and look to him. Faith arises over the graves of natural possibility, says Ernst Kasemann, one of my favorite interpreters of Romans. And so it does if it's the faith of Abraham, or your faith, or mine. This means that Christian faith is more Jewish than you or I may have thought. It turns out that Abraham really is the father. Not of those who could or still can claim lineal descent from him but of all those who, as Paul says at the end of our text, believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. We are his true sons and daughters, Abraham's true offspring, and therefore members by faith of God's people Israel. And how truly has he, Abraham, become, as Paul puts it, quote, the father of many nations, unquote, since out of every tribe and and tongue on the planet now, souls are coming to place their trust and confidence in God for everything that's beyond the reach of sinners such as we, on account of Jesus. And if you are not one of these, I'd love to talk with you about how to begin to trust him I confess that there's another t-shirt that I covet, at least every once in a while, when I see it in a little catalog that comes from Jews for Jesus, a ministry that Karen and I have supported for 40 years. It reads across the front, Jesus made me Jewish. And he did. Because I'm utterly convinced this is the conviction of faith, isn't it? Utterly convinced that he came into the world to set me free too and to bring me home to his father along with a great host of others who who were meant to be God's daughters and sons from all eternity. And the confidence and trust in what he and the father and the holy spirit are doing which he has awakened in me and i trust in you is the kind of faith for which that old jew abraham is always the father that is why the great and unforgettable truth in god's word to us today is that jesus has made us jewish too And that we who believe are Abraham's offspring and God's. And isn't that good news? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me, please? God, thank you that you love sinners. And you will not let sin and death have the last word for you. We know, since you raised Jesus from death to life, that you are able to do what is impossible, including make straight what is so bent and twisted in us. Set right all this wrong. Turn our unrighteousness into his glorious righteousness. Thank you for awakening faith in us and for taking us deeper and wider in that faith, trusting you and looking to you for all things. And we pray that you would awaken that in in many dear souls around us. And if all of us begin to live a justified life of grace and peace and joy. We'll be pleased for Jesus to have all the credit. We pray in his name. Amen.